Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Dr. Aaron Pomerantz back to the show. He's a social psychologist and researcher in Houston, Texas. Aaron, good to see you once again. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's good to be back. Okay, this is this is not a topic I would have anticipated us talking about, but but I'm glad it's come up. Uh, the Barbie movie, of course, has kind of taken the country by storm over the summer, and boy, there's been no shortage of commentary. Especially, it seems there's been a lot of commentary from the political right. And you po- you pose the question: Why are conservative men so mad about Barbie? Tell me more. Well, and the the title's a bit of a. Of, of an of exaggeration just for effect, right? Obviously, there are plenty of, I think actually the most conservative man I am, I personally know loved the Barbie movie. But there's certainly been from the more institutional conservative media uh, a pretty harsh reaction. I think the most um, indicative or the most prototypical would be Ben Shapiro setting a Barbie mobile on fire with wow. Barbie and Ken in it. <laughs> And then just doubling down for weeks afterwards saying, no, this was a very, very normal, very, very rational thing for me to do. Stop criticizing me. Uh, But there have been others as well who just say this is you know, woke nonsense. It's the worst movie they've ever seen. Uh, and it's it's really actually interesting because some of the people who are being called out as conservatives are people like Bill Maher, who also hated it, who <laughs> when I was in high school, Bill Maher was super duper left, but right, is now right. apparently right wing in that he hates the Barbie movie. Okay. So look, I I don't go to a lot of movies. So actually, I hate to admit, I haven't seen this movie. Um, Barbie didn't really affect me much. Uh, but I do have a perception that there's an awful lot of woke messaging that, that comes in most TV shows and movies these days. So it wouldn't have surprised me if Barbie was filled with, with woke messaging. But I'm hearing, uh, actually, from I'm hearing from a number of different sources, including some I didn't expect that, no, it was actually a pretty decent movie on the whole. What was your opinion? Well, my, my take and the one I put forth in my article is that I, I think, if anything, it's an invitation to people on the right wing to have a conversation. I do not think it is a woke movie. Uh, both Margot Robbie, the titular star uh, who played Barbie, and Greta Gerwig, the director, have both kind of backed off, or not backed off, but um, been taken aback when they're asked, is this a feminist movie? Is this a left-wing movie? And they're like, it's a movie. And I think their point is very well made. I would challenge a conservative to go and see this movie with an open mind. And I think that a conservative, anyone in the center right, anyone who's who's expecting wokeness, if you go in with an open mind, I think you'll find plenty to pique your interest. I think there's a lot that's actually explicitly given, put in this movie. It's given to conservatives to start a conversation. They, you know, refuse to dichotomize traditional femininity and professional achievement. There's even a a quote from the movie, either you're weird and ugly or you're brainwashed and there's no in between that I thought was just a a hilarious, like, commentary on the modern discussions of feminism. And it's a pretty, I would say, a pretty hefty punch at at both sides. Uh, The character who is the most woke in the movie, I would say, is a 13-year-old who, when she's making all of her woke statements, it is clearly meant to be a parody. 
it is clearly not meant to be taken in earnest, especially because that character goes on a journey, literally and figuratively, and becomes as good a person as any 13-year-old is capable of being. So if anything, I would say, I'm not going to say the movie is woke or anti-woke because I'm not sure what counts as either of those things anymore. But certainly if people going in expecting this uh, preachy, man-hating movie, I think if they're actually willing to let themselves be challenged and willing to see the movie on its, its terms, they'll actually find this is a movie that has something for everyone. Okay. No, I think fair enough. If people go and see it, then I think they really have a, the opportunity to take a stand one way or the other. Now, look, I went to see Avatar many years ago thinking, you know, this costed, you know, so much money and it's going to be so incredible. And visually, it was an incredible movie. At the same time, when it was over, I was kind of like, this This feels like Fern Gully meets G.I. Joe. <laughs> I wasn't really sure, you know, if, if there was a message being given to me or not. So I'm a little shy about messaging in movies. I just want to be entertained. And what I'm hearing from a number of different people is this is on the whole, this is really more of an entertaining movie than, than anything. I think it's an entertaining movie, but I think that an entertaining movie can still be thought provoking. In fact, I think all the best movies do this successfully, which is why movies like Avatar didn't have staying power, but maybe a movie like Star Wars that is incredibly entertaining, but also you can have conversations about it, has that staying power. For Barbie, I think there's all sorts of conversations you can have that the director wants you to have. Uh, and and literally everything from uh, the, the idea of gender equality, like what does gender equality do? There's in, in Barbie land, there's sort of an inversion of uh, patriarchy in the modern world, but there's also I would say some some conversations that could be had about responses to gender inequality. What is a profitable response? What is a good response versus a non-profitable or a non-good response? There is definitely some pot shots taken in the movie at real world issues, but they're done in a way that I think is meant to spur conversation without giving away too much. And something that people have really gotten mad about, there, there, the theme of patriarchy emerges in the movie. And everyone's like, well, who even argues for patriarchy? And it's like, plenty of people do. Plenty of people use those words. Some of the critics of this movie have, in their Twitters, said, we like patriarchy. And if you search Twitter, you can find that. So when you see somebody say something like that, it's, it's fair to criticize it and then point out, hey, you know, maybe the a good solution isn't having only men or only women in charge, but some sort of, of gender equality, equ equality before the law or something like that. And that's been a conversation we've been having as a society for a long time and that I think we still need to keep having. And Barbie kind of offers a, a fun way to do that in a way that kind of pokes fun at the extremes on both sides of that discussion and allows for new ways forward in it, I think. Aaron, is it impossible for a movie, however well intended, to avoid some degree of politicization today? Is is that just is that just part of getting a movie made and and out there? I mean, I don't work in the industry, so I wouldn't know if it's about getting a movie made. But I think in terms of response, no, everything's political. Everything has become political, and there's even people who, unironically, say everything is political. Now, that being said, I think that's that's not just uh, a problem of the woke. I think we see this in a lot of the right wing's response to movies like Barbie, a lot of the right wing's response to kind of anything in popular entertainment. They just go in expecting to see it being politicized, and lo and behold, they, they see what they expected. Confirmation bias is very powerful. 
Uh, and to the point that even some of the discourse around this movie, I mean, Candace Owens didn't even see it, but that didn't stop her from writing and talking about it. So to that end, I'm like, is it really about the movie? Is, is, is it about how the movie is made, how the movie is received, or how the, how the movie is produced, rather? Or is it about how the movie is received? So to that extent, I think even think of the least political movie you could possibly think, you could possibly think of, and someone will find a way to make it political. I'm sure there are people who are doing that intentionally as well, but you know, there's a feedback loop as well. You know, they know that people are going to talk about it politically, so they have to put the themes in in a certain way or not. Like, like I said earlier, I admit, I when I when I do watch a movie, I, I sometimes sit down with a sense of oh, I hope this isn't one of those preachy, you know, overtly um, woke kind of movies. And that's not because I like to go around looking for it around every corner, but I've I've kind of been unpleasantly blindsided by a few where it was like, wow, this is a sermon more than, than entertainment. So I, I had, I understand what you're saying about confirmation bias. And if you're looking for it, you're definitely going to find it. I just, I just miss the days when we could enjoy a show and, and there was as little political, you know, attachment to it as possible. Well, yeah, everything's about signaling what side you belong to. And that's, I think, the biggest tragedy of the Barbie movie is I think the Barbie movie was deliberately not trying to do that. I think it was trying to appeal to both sides. Greta Gerwig certainly says that's what she was trying to do. And I think that if you re if you watch this movie, and I go over some examples in my piece, if you watch this movie as a right-winger or a traditionalist or whatever you want to call yourself – with that open mind, you'll find something that's like, huh, that that appeals to me. It's not preachy. But if you go in expecting to be preached at, then maybe you'll see that. I don't know. I went in expecting a really good time. I I I loved seeing the memes and the sort of jokes that surrounded this. My wife and I went opening week, though not opening weekend, because we have a kid. But I went in, I wore my pink, and I had an absolute ball. I'm not saying the movie was for me, quote unquote, but I went in just expecting to be entertained and was actually kind of surprised at how much I I was challenged and, and the thought-provoking uh, elements of this movie. So I think it's it's worth everybody's time, if only to to be aware of a cultural phenomenon. Like don't let don't let outrage mongers who want to then sell their own preachy movies and preachy material to you rob you of a great film and a cultural highlight. If and something makes you want to burn something in response, maybe the problem's with you and not, you know, the movie. Yeah, yeah, that would be my my thought. Aaron, where can people find you on social media? I am on Twitter at pompom9211. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome a new contributor this week. Amelia Wedward is a communications associate of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, as well as being a Young Voices contributor. And Amelia, I'm sure there are a few other hats that you wear. Would you take just a moment? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. 
Sure, thanks so much. My name is Amelia Wedward. I am a contributor with Young Voices and a communications associate at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, also known as WILL. Uh, WILL, for those that don't know, WILL is a litigation and policy think tank that advances the public interest in the rule of law, individual liberties, constitutional government, and really providing a robust civil society throughout Wisconsin and across the nation. I've previously worked in K through 12 education education research as a policy intern, but now I'm focusing on our work throughout various platforms and really uplifting other stories within the freedom movement. So uh, thank you so much for having me on the show, Brian. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. I'm happy to have you on here and the topic that we're going to be discussing couldn't be more timely. Um, school choice is something that is, uh, it's an issue all across the nation. Some places there are some great inroads being made. Some places it's struggling to find traction, but one thing I always hear is, now is that a proper use of taxpayer money? You have a wonderful piece that you've written for the Cap Times about there's a better way to fund school choice. Uh, set the stage for us, if you will, about uh, about where your, your commentary uh, explores this particular issue. Sure, thank you. So the current model right now for funding education in Wisconsin, it's it's really outdated, it's inefficient, and it's so complex. But to put it in simple terms, under our constitution, our school choice programs can have an effect on local property taxpayers. So to put it simply, local districts can raise funds when a student leaves the district to participate in a choice program. So kind of unfairly, to fund both systems, taxpayers end up paying twice, once to fund the school choice program and again to pay for the district's like big tax hikes. And we at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, we truly believe that decoupling would help break this down. Nice. Well, I know that's, you know, that is one of the big concerns I hear. I live in Idaho, and that was one of the hangups, and school choice narrowly failed to pass this last legislative session because um, there were one or two Republican legislators who said, I just am not sure this is a, a proper use, you know, of, of, of taxpayer money. Now, you mentioned that there is a better way by which school choice could be funded. Let's take some time and explore that. Mm-hmm. So uh, the beneficial spending model that I talk about in my piece is called decoupling. So by decoupling private school funding from the property taxes um, and funding students, then instead the state can reduce costs for local taxpayers. So under a decoupling plan, students that use school choice would be financed fully by the state and all property tax implications would then be removed. This could really appease both school choice and public school advocates alike while sparing the taxpayer's wallet. Um, And if I could go on, decoupling isn't a new idea. Um, For instance, by the 2024-2025 school year, the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, which is one of our four choice programs in Wisconsin, will be funded directly by the state. And by Will's conservative estimations prior to this new law passing um, that I can speak briefly about, and also under our old voucher amount, Um, The state, if they followed that same model, decoupling would cut property taxes over 168 million statewide. So this is just a better way to fund students and not systems. So I have to ask this just because I know that the the people who are opposed to school choice uh, seem pretty dedicated and and they seem pretty committed to, no, we don't want it, we don't want it. Um, 
even if it, if uh, states were to follow this lead and to decouple, you know, property taxes from from school choice uh, spending, would there still be outcry over the fact that uh, this money's coming through the state? That essentially, it's still going to be seen as tax dollars by some. Does that does that pose a problem? So that's definitely a great question. Um, so choice schools are constantly hammered with this accusation that they're taking money away from local public schools. And the, the decoupling model would really take that claim away altogether, since the state would be funding those funds um, to the choice program. It's really a win-win for public and school choice supporters overall. Um, like I said, the money should be following the kid, and this roadmap helps pave the way to better fund kids and not the systems, all while being conscious of our tax dollars. So there's definitely going to be outcries from those that oppose um, choice altogether. But if you really look down at the breakdown, this is really a bipartisan um, issue at hand here. Now, I have a perception, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong. I perceive uh, Wisconsin to be a fairly blue state, but it sounds like there's pretty widespread support for school choice. I mean, can, can you help me get my mind around that? <laughs> yeah, so Brian, we, we like to call ourselves a Bruce Purple. It might be a little bit more blue nowadays. But um, yeah, this recent, um, the, actually the re very reason why I wrote my op-ed on this topic is because earlier this summer, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers signed a bipartisan bill that helped lessen the funding gap between public and choice schools. Um, a great win overall for education reform. And to give your listeners some background, um, <clears throat> Wisconsin public schools on average receive a little over $14,000 from the state in local revenue. And then I could go into the weeds of specific numbers, but prior to this new law, um, choice programs, charter schools, they only received approximately 60% of what the, the revenue was. But with the new law, uh, Choice and Charter now receive about 76% of what the public schools get from the state and local revenue. And so, yes, it, it passed the Assembly, it passed the Senate, it went on the Governor, Governor Evers' desk, he signed it. And now Wisconsin is the seventh state with the closest gap um, between funding for public and choice schools. So more can be done with decoupling, but this was a great win overall. I have to ask, where did the, the decoupling idea come from. Maybe this is what other states should be looking to, you know, when they've reached an impasse, you know, again, over, over um, you know, tax dollars. Yeah, that's a great question. I will definitely have to ping our researchers here um, and directors for education policy. But you're right, there are other states that are implementing a lot of great um, school choice initiatives across the country. Um, your listeners may know Utah implemented an educational savings account. So they're, they're the second state this year after Iowa to enact a universal school choice policy. Uh, several more states followed suit, including Arkansas, Florida, Indiana, South Carolina, Oklahoma. Um, but right now in Wisconsin, the funding levels we've gained has been a great step from the bipartisan school choice deal. But we hope that decoupling will be the next and then that could be paired with an ESA. So overall, school choice is just about 
finding the educational system that works best for your family and the student. There shouldn't be limits of where you're from, what your zip code is to fit your educational needs, whether it's public choice or charter schools. That being said, Wisconsin is home to the oldest choice program in the country. And it would be amazing to see our state as a leader, not just for education reform again, but in savings to property taxpayers. Okay, I'm I'm actually going to forward your article to uh, some lawmakers that I know here in my home state of Idaho, just because uh, this may be uh, an option that they haven't considered uh, to date. So, thanks for a great idea. Mind if we steal it? <laughs> of course, Brian. Thank you so much. So, do, do you see school choice? Uh, um, is it an idea whose time has come? I mean, it seems like for, it's been going on for a long time, but I'm starting to see some dominoes fall. And it, it seems like the more states that come on board, the, the greater the likelihood this is going to become, you know, the, the new norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Wisconsin started this education reform over 30 years ago. Wow. And... You know, there's more than 52,000 students statewide that use uh, Wisconsin's Choice Program. Um, I could write out some national stats here. There are 32 states, including Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, granting educational opportunities to more than 600,000 students across the country. Um, so, yeah, I, I truly believe that, you know, school choice is winning. There's definitely going to be a legal attacks will be made on this front, but, you know, it's it's a win-win altogether. Again, we are talking with Amelia Wedward, and she is a new uh, contributor to Young Voices. Amelia, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people find you on social media? Of course. So you can find me on social media on Twitter at Amelia Wedward, um, and you can also look at our work at will-law.org. Thanks again, Brian, and have a good week. And we are back. Welcome to segment three of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we are happy to welcome to the show this week uh, a new contributor, Andrew Reeder. He's a student of economics at uh, Northwood University, where he also holds a position as a research scholar working in economics and energy policy with the McNair Center for the Advancement of Free Enterprise and Entrepreneurship. And he is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, first of all, Andrew, welcome to the show. Anything else you can tell us about who you are and what you do? Hello, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm happy to be here to speak with your listeners. Um, uh, you know, at the McNair Center, we've been doing a lot of research, like what was in this article of late. So um, this was just a natural uh, brainchild from what I've been working on lately. All right. I love this article, too. Why is Gavin Newsom price gouging Californians? And I assume Gavin Newsom is like a lot of other um, governors and that I will not allow people to be price gouged, you know, blading. And in particular, we're talking at the gas pump, blaming, you know, greedy uh, gas retailers. They're price gouging you. But uh, you make a pretty strong case that the one who's doing the price gouging is actually one Gavin Newsom. Talk to me about uh, why why do, do he and other governors play this game? of uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna protect you while at the same time they're they're gouging us well Brian in in my school of economics uh, over at Northwood University we sort of bounce back and forth between Austrian and Chicago economics and essentially we deny most cases of price gouging as just a lot of fluff that's used in political um, games and so whenever a governor says somebody is price gouging I immediately 
raise my suspicions and like to look into this. Um, if anything, the only way that a corporation could potentially price gouge and still compete competitively on a fair market is if he had collusion with the government. So anybody with a ground in economics like like me just really thinks that a, a politician should avoid using that word altogether because in the end it's probably their fault. Um, now, why is Gavin Newsom price gouging Californians? I'll admit that's definitely a little bit of a clickbait title. It's not just Gavin Newsom's fault. Uh, some of these programs go before his administration, but certainly he is carrying on the torch. You know, when I saw that Senate bill, I think it was 1322 was coming through the California Senate and the whole thing was just, oh, the American fuel industry is price gouging Californians. And of course, anyone who's paying attention to the news at all knows that for gas prices in California are exorbitant. So again, my suspicions just naturally raised. I went back and I researched and, you know, the American fuel industry, even the Californian local fuel industry, really doesn't make very much profit at all off of fuel. I mean, when you look at it, the local gas station makes about six cents a gallon on fuel. So if you drive up your RAV4 to the local gas station, they're going to make about a whopping 87 cents off of you oh in boy. profit. <laughs> Oil refineries don't do much better. They probably make $1.60 off your rev for um, so much of that that you're paying in uh, California is e being eaten up by the cost of government regulations. And then, of course, explicitly, California has, uh, I believe, the highest gas taxes or perhaps the second highest gas taxes in the nation and the state uh, when compared to the, the private industry is making close to $9 off of your RAV4 when you go to fuel up. Uh, this, is, this is really something that Californians should be concerned about. They're paying 98% more in taxes when they fuel up than anyone else in America. Wow. I, I believe it. In fact, when I start to complain about, uh, wow, gas prices are so high where I live, um, I just go uh, Google, you know, gas prices in California, and suddenly I feel a whole lot better. And I'm sorry for the Californians. <laughs> Absolutely. So is I mean, I know we're reaching the end of the summer driving season. Supposedly, gas prices are going to be coming down. Um, as an economist, do you see long-term um, we're going to get some relief in what we're paying at the pump, or is this regulatory, you know, um, tax-heavy structure likely to continue for the foreseeable future? Well, I think we are seeing a little bit of relief because there was we're, we're of course, coming off uh, a travel high of the summer, like I think you were starting to get at. Uh, gas prices always rise in the summer as people travel and the supply gets shorter. Um, so as we head into the winter months, of course, we'll see some relief. But unless people really start to investigate the way their government is handling um, the, 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 the transaction of fuel in their state, um, they're going to continue to be price gouged by their government. Uh, 
Californians are never going to be competitive with the uh, fuel industry of other states until the state takes its neck off the private industry. Wow. Uh, what I'm... No, continue. Go, go ahead. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, so I just think that it, it, we, we're always seeing, especially with the climate agenda that we have in, in some of the radical politics today, uh, just this constant throttling of the private sector and the overregulation, the taxation is is all being passed on to the citizens because businesses have accountants. Okay, they they pay very few of their taxes. Their customers pay the majority. Uh, oftentimes, as high as eighty percent of business taxes are passed on to the customer, and that's something that politicians don't like to talk about. No, but that is reality, and I appreciate you pointing it out because I think sometimes the electorate is easily fooled, and and I I hate to see the the pandering of politicians, you know, where it's always trying to shift the blame. I I very rarely hear anyone correctly identify. Well, the reason this is so expensive, whether it's whether it's taxes or just simply you know the added costs of of intense regulation, uh, very seldom does the finger ever point back at well, it's it's government that's that's causing this this price to go higher and higher. Yeah, and um, the 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 average electorate should also be aware of the fact that businesses don't necessarily want their prices to be high. Um, the higher your prices are, the more advantage your competitors have. And so whenever you see a price hike, it, it certainly could be an issue in the private sector, but I would first look at your local government. Nice. So um, any advice? I know with with uh, next year being an election year, uh, there, there are going to be uh, politicians either running for re-election, some running for election. What are the kinds of questions that we ought to be asking as informed voters to make sure that they understand that we aren't going to fall for uh, the kind of rhetorical sleight of hand that Gavin Newsom, among others, you know, have, have been giving us in terms of, uh, you know, who's responsible for these higher costs? Well, that's a great question, Brian. I think that politicians who have not been good stewards of our economy do need to face some sort of penalty in the election. Uh, that's the way that our government was built up. You know, good politicians are supposed to continue, bad politicians are supposed to fail. And of late, the rhetoric has just been such that people believe some of the things they're saying. Oh, it's all the gas industry's fault for gas prices in your state. It's not my fault at all. Well, of course, they're going to say that. I mean, it is really looking like two-year-old children up there these days. So just informing yourself, looking back, trying to gauge how well they really have been stewards of your state and weighing that with the policies that are being uh, put forth by other people who may be running against this politician, I think that we need to make much more of an educated vote than an emotional vote. Here, here, and I think that would actually help us on a lot of levels. Anyway, it seems like the um, the tensions are getting high, and we're still more than a year out from you know the general election. But um, as far as people being better informed about uh, you know why they're paying so much at the pump, um, are there good resources you could point them toward to where they can better understand why they feel pain every time they go to fill up? Well, I could plug the McNair Center. We, we put out a lot. Um, I guess the best way that you could track what we're doing is just to uh, 
follow our director, Dr. Tim Nash. He's all over the place with this stuff these days. I'm, of course, tagging along as a, an assistant scholar. Um, you can follow uh, me. I am most active on LinkedIn. Uh, you can look me up. My handle is just Andrew Reader. You can also find me on Twitter, where my handle, I believe, is Andrew D. Reader. So, and Reader spelled um, R-E-D-E-R. It is. It looks like Redder. Okay. Very good. Any closing thoughts? We're down to about the last 10 seconds here. Just that uh, whenever the state says that the private industry is price gouging, I would investigate the state. Very good. Our guest is Andrew Reeder. He is a new contributor for Moving Forward with Young Voices. And uh, very glad to have you on the show, Andrew. Hope to have you back again soon. Thank you, Brian. I hope to be back soon. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Dylan Dean to the team. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Dylan, take a moment here. Tell us about uh, yourself, you know, all the hats you wear and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Dylan. I'm an electrical engineer. I also have a degree in computer engineering. And I've had a, a presence in politics for a while. I've worked for Young Americans for Liberty. I've been a coordinator with Students for Liberty. And right now I'm just very passionate about the intersection of politics and technology. And where that seems to be focusing a lot right now is artificial intelligence. It's all the rage. Everyone's fighting about what kind of restrictions, if any, should be put on it. And I'm becoming uh, an AI hobbyist right now, I'd call myself. I'm not, I'm not quite at the, the competency level of a developer, but I'm working on it. And I just really want to make the argument that people should be free to develop AI and we shouldn't put needless restrictions in the way of that. Now, interestingly enough, your article that is published in nationalinterest.org says U.S. copyright law will suffocate AI. And I have to admit, that really grabbed me, Dylan. I I know that uh, we're all still, uh, many of us are still adapting to the fact, you know, that we're in the digital age, the information age. Pretty much every, the Internet has changed everything, and AI is threatening to likewise uh, uh, give us another great big shift in how things are done. Talk to me about how copyright law needs to catch up with, with this latest shift. Yeah, so building artificial intelligence is different than traditional software development because the key input is data. AI models aren't programmed, they learn. And they can't learn unless you have good information to feed into it. The problem here is that copyright law is very convoluted and very restrictive and kind of unclear on how you can use it to train AI models. One of the problems is because copyright is conferred automatically on creation of a work, there's no central database of what is copyrighted and when that copyright expires. So it's hard to tell with the data you're trying to feed into your model whether or not there's current copyright under it. My take on the solution to this is because AI models learn from their input data 
in an, in an analogous way to how we learn from the things we see and experience. That they should be allowed to learn from any legally possessed copyrighted content, just like how you and I can read a book and learn from it. And the copyright holder of that book makes no claim to partial ownership of our mind as a result of that. Good point. Talk to me about, uh, you know, I understand you, you point out in your article that AI is used to, uh, to write code. Um, how does this apply to, for instance, you know, writing code and software uh, for all the systems that, that run our world? Um, tell me about how, tell me about the role that AI is playing and, and how this too might uh, run afoul of copyright law. Yeah, so there's, there are a number of models that people are using to write code. Obviously, ChatGPT, everyone knows about it, and a lot of software developers rely on it. They'll ask it, hey, can you give me an example implementation of software to do this specific thing? Let me see how you would do that. There's also some uh, inline AI assistance. So when you're, when you're programming, you'll use what's called an IDE, an integrated development environment. And it's where you write code, run it, debug it, you do all of that in there. And there's things like GitHub Copilot that can integrate with that IDE and you can tell it, hey, help me write a function for this. And Copilot specifically is made by GitHub, which is owned by Microsoft. And there was an uproar about how it was trained on a lot of program, uh, a lot of code hosted on GitHub, which is where a lot of programmers keep their code. And people are complaining because that code is their intellectual property, but it's also publicly available there for anyone else to go look at and learn from. And it shouldn't be the case that you can't also have a model that learns from that and assist people in programming. Interesting. You also bring up art. Now, I, you know, art... I don't know. AI cranks out some pretty interesting stuff, but are there challenges to uh, to what art uh, or how art is affected through um, you know AI either creating or replicating existing works? Yeah, this one the the debate over seems a bit more rabid, and I think that's because a lot of artists feel threatened by the emergence of AI art. That if a model can create art, then they're not going to have as much of a market for their services. And I think that's wrong for a number of reasons. One, uh, courts have ruled that AI art, art created by AI, can't be copyrighted. So if you want an artwork that you have copyright to, you have to commission a human artist to do that. There have been, you know, a number of debates on on x now by artists saying my work was trained on i didn't consent to this happening but these artists put their work out there they didn't grant everyone the full rights to it but they put it out there where a human artist could look at it and learn from it try to learn to replicate their style and what ai models are aiming to do is no different than that uh, now i just out of curiosity could this also include music? I don't think I've heard of AI creating music, but I'm certain that somebody out there is trying to make it work. Yeah, there there have been some models that that create music. Uh, there was, oh, I'm trying to remember exactly what the song was, but there was some fake Drake music 
coming out that used an AI imitation of Drake's voice. I know Grimes has said that she has given everyone permission to use AI replications of her voice in their music. And I think that's a really cool thing that, you know, an up and coming artist can have someone like Grimes as a feature on their, their music. Interesting. As far as full creation of music, the, the models I've seen that do that are impressive, but they're not as good as human creating music currently. That's probably why we haven't seen as much about that yet. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, let's, let's go back to, you mentioned in your article, we have 18th or 18th century intellectual property laws. Um, I assume that the technology has been responsible for why we've had to adjust a lot of these laws. You know, it used to be, you know, that uh, I, I, I use, for example, you know, burning a copy of a song for a friend. Now, technically, that's piracy, but the original copy doesn't cease to exist just because you, you made a copy. Um, what are some of the places where we need to change these uh, intellectual property laws and copyright laws, um, but but still maintain the idea that you know we don't we're, we're not supposed to be stealing or profiting off other people's ideas or work. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, one of the one of the big changes that needs to happen is that it needs to be explicitly allowed to train AI models on copyrighted material, because again, this is something that if you were to suggest. 20 years ago, that it'd be illegal to learn from copyrighted work. If you buy a book, you're not allowed to learn from it. That would be an absurd idea. It's entering the mainstream now because of artificial intelligence, but we can't allow that to happen. And as I mentioned, the courts are given a lot of discretion as to how they apply copyright laws. So this doesn't even require an act of Congress. It just needs the courts to understand the implications of how they rule on AI models training on copyright material. The the question was broad, so I'm going to give my other major critique of copyright law, and that's how it seems to continuously be extended every time Mickey Mouse is about to become public domain. <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we're choking out what is public domain, and that hurts areas other than artificial intelligence. So interesting. I mean, that's a very relatable example, by the way. I think I think most people would be like, oh, wait, wait, hey, wait, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> now, some things are just sacred. You don't you don't tamper with with the mouse. Um, exactly. Let me ask you this, Dylan, you in, in your uh, position um, as a as as a computer scientist and also as an engineer, um, what do you recommend people if they want to get a better understanding of AI? What are some good resources? I, I mean, like starting from the ground up. Obviously, there are some very advanced resources out there, but for a person who's really trying to get their mind around it, what's a good source they could turn to? Man, if I had to give one, it would be Andre Carpathy's video series on YouTube on building artificial intelligence from scratch, and you start from the very basics. It's helpful to have a, a basic grasp of calculus, but you don't even need that to get into the weeds on it. Nice. That's a, that's a good recommendation, and I appreciate it. We are uh, we're coming up on the end of the segment here, so let's take just a moment. Again, we're talking with Dylan Dean. He is a Young Voices contributor. Dylan, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they find your writing? I'm Dylan CVD everywhere. 
Uh, I actually recently created a website, dylandean.dev. I'm going to be updating that with links to all my articles. So all my writing is going to be up there. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. 